And so the greatest, most epic story ever told is a story of the gospel. So next time you're so attracted to a movie or to a show or to a script, I want you to think about the thing in your heart that you're longing for, and that what you're longing for is fulfilled in Jesus. You are listening to a message preached by Pastor Bogdan Kipko at Forward Church in Irvine, California. For more information about Forward Church, please visit forward.fm. So as we start our message today, um, I want to I briefly, I want to tell you guys about an incredible story and I want to... I want to actually talk to you guys today about the greatest story that was ever told. And it's written in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. And I think if you come from a church background and if you've ever read this text, most likely you probably skipped over it because it was just a bunch of names. If you don't come from a church background, you probably might read this text and you're like, well, what does it mean to me or why is it important? Well, I want to focus on this text today and I want to draw out from it a particular principle that talks about the greatest story ever told. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17. And there's going to be a reason why I'm going to read all these names. It's all going to make sense in the end. So Matthew, uh, the first gospel in the New Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Here is the genealogy of Jesus. Or essentially, this is like a family tree of how Jesus came about. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elakim. Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok. If you're thinking of kids' names, there you go. Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and from 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I want to talk to you guys about the genealogy of Jesus. This is a, uh, a, where Jesus ultimately uh, came from, and here's the, 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 the thing. Genealogies explain to you where you came from, and 
in the Old Testament, in the Eastern culture, genealogies were used very much like resumes are used today. So what do we do on our resumes? If you've ever applied for a job, we try to put our best foot forward, correct? We put our best jobs. We don't put the managers that fired us on there for references, right? Because who would want to call them? They're horrible people anyway. And so we put only the best things. And maybe you've never even worked in accounting or in business or in finance. And maybe you just were manning the garage sale. And you said you were an executive director of a multipreneur enterprise. And maybe some of us who are more sinful, we, we put those kinds of things on our resumes, faking it till we make it. Why do we do that? Because we want people to think the best of us, right? We want to put the most shiniest, the most lucrative things on our resume. How many of us have even worked at places we get paid nothing at, but we said it's going to look great on our resume? We've said that before, right? So the thing is with us in our human nature, on our resume, of course we put the best things possible. But in the genealogy of Jesus, as we're going to find out later on, the genealogy is essentially where Jesus came from. And Matthew is not going to hide any bad parts or any parts that might not be the most, that wouldn't put Jesus in the best light possible. So that's one of the things that we're going to learn about today. Now, before we get to the genealogy, I want to talk about fables and facts. There's a difference between the two. And if you noticed, when we started reading this story, it said the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, the gospel writer, didn't just start the story saying, once upon a time, or there was this great story that I'm going to tell you about, or in a land far away, which is how most children's stories start, which are fables, which are not true, and we tend to lie to our kids and say this really happened until they grow up and they understand the reality of everything, right? Well, the thing is, the Bible is true. It's not a fable, it's a fact. So when Matthew, the gospel writer, starts this story and says it's the genealogy of Jesus, he's saying it's not just once upon a time. He's saying it's once for all time. I'm going to tell you about the greatest story you've ever heard that's going to change the history of humanity. This is a story rooted in facts, in historical accounts. It is accurate. It's true. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, who was God, came to earth in human flesh. It's not a fable. It's not once upon a time. It's not a myth. It's not this thing that we kind of conjectured up just to make ourselves feel better. It's true. But now we must look at the difference between good news and good advice. Have you ever experienced somebody giving you good advice? Good advice is something that you have to act upon, whereas good news is news what already happened. You guys see what I'm saying? Good advice is what you have to do. Good news is what's been done for you. Good advice is what you have to muster up your strength to do, but good news is what's already been done for you. So imagine this. You're living in the city, and your your family's there, your children are there, and you learn of a enemy that's going to come and attack your city and lay siege to your city. This enemy is going, enemy is going to destroy your homes, destroy your businesses, and kill your family. And so you learned about this. So the first thing you do is you go to the townspeople and you start talking to them. And you say, look, we need to create a plan to protect ourselves. We need to go and get military forces. We need to put up fortresses and we need to put up military marksmen to make sure that they protect us. And so we go to this major multi-plan in order to protect our city. And so imagine this, in the midst of maybe 
you or your family or your husband or, or somebody or your brother or sister, they're trying to protect the city before this enemy comes in. You have a messenger that comes into your city and says to you, stop what you're doing. Stop trying to protect the city. Stop striving. Stop stressing. There was this king who intersected this army and destroyed this army and they are no longer coming for you because this king saved you. My friends, that is not just good advice, that's good news. And if you're living in the city, how would you feel? You would rejoice. You would say, we need to stop building these fortresses. We need to stop trying to save ourselves because this great king has come and saved us. And that's the beauty of Christmas. That's the meaning of Jesus, that he comes to save us. He didn't just come to give us good advice. He came to give us good news. And he's here to tell us, stop stressing, stop striving, stop trying to save yourself, and stop trying to be on a self-improvement project because you'll never be able to be improved. Just trust in me and what I did for you. That's the difference, my friends, between good news and good advice. It's the difference between trying to save yourself and you being saved. Maybe you're here, you don't go to church that often. You're like, well, I don't try to save myself. You do. We all do, my friends. We're all guilty of this. We try to save ourselves how? Through a career we have, through a job we have, through maybe a car we drive, through the place where we live, how we look, what people think of us, the validation we get, approval from our parents, from our peers. We try to get this saving salvation project going on because we're desperately seeking approval and attention and validation from other people. But the story of Christmas is not that you're going to save yourself. It's that somebody else came to save you because you couldn't save yourself. That's the good news. It's not about saving yourself. It's about you being saved. And that's why Christianity is not primarily about self-improvement. You can try to become better, but you can't fix the problem in your heart, which is sin. And that's what Jesus only can do. We see so many people trying to fix issues on their own, and they just keep coming up excited. Um, they keep coming up short and exhausted. Now, we're talking about the greatest story ever told. Why do we love stories? Have you ever thought of that? Why is it that when your favorite show drops on Netflix, you have no problem blocking out an entire three days out of your calendar to binge watch it? None of us have an issue with it, right? We're like, hey, work tomorrow? Nah, sounds like I'm getting the snifflies. I'm sick, right? We have projects, we have deadlines, we have papers to write, exams to study for, but if our favorite show came out, we're like, uh, yeah, I don't really need to graduate college. And we watch these Netflix shows, and, and, and it's the, the best when you, when you come up to a particular show, when you're like, you discover it, and it's like four seasons deep, and like 55 episodes in each season, and you hit the jackpot. And you're like, this is it, I'm set. Why do we love that? Think of the reason you go to movies. You can sit through a two and a half hour, three hour movie. Why is it like that? You go to a Broadway show, you're attracted to stories, you're attracted to scripts. Why do we love movies so much? Why is it that we're attracted to movies that show us a reality that doesn't exist? And we think it does. And we watch a movie about a guy who takes this pill and he becomes limitless and he can see everything and he can walk through walls and he can know what everybody's thinking and he has all the knowledge of the world in, in his mind. And we watch that movie and we're captivated by it. At the same time, we know it's not true, but there's a deep feeling inside of our heart where we think, but maybe it is. 
Or we watch a romantic comedy, comedy and this couple is having this beautiful candlelit dinner on top of the Eiffel Tower and they have filet mignon and duck and champagne and all these beautiful things and the guy proposes to her and they live happily ever after and they have 2.5 kids and they live in the greatest area of the United States after they fly back and we're like, wow, this is going to be my future but then you get married and it's not. And you just want to say, well, why? But in the movie, it seems so real. It seems so real that the proposal was so magical. It was so engaging. There was 10 cameras, and I could hardly get my, you know, my cousin to film me on the iPhone, and he deleted the footage. <laughs> Christmas is about a story, and there's a reason why you and I are attracted to stories, because it taps into something, into our hearts, for which we long for it to be true, but we know it's not. So when you watch a great Christmas movie with your family this season, or when you go to the movie theater, or you watch your greatest Netflix show, it's not that you're engaging in a form of escapism. It's that your heart is longing for God and you're looking for him in the script of your favorite show. I don't know if you ever thought of it, but that's exactly it. Now, when we think of Christmas, it is the most epic story, the most epic narrative ever written. I mean, think about it. We have this great hero, this legend, who comes in from a different world, this hero breaks into our world. He does incredible things. He brings people back from the dead. He heals people who are sick. He controls the weather. He walks on water. This is the most epic hero you can ever think of. And then towards the end of his life, he has this arch nemesis. He defeats him. He dies. He comes back from the dead. Three days later, he defeats the forces of evil. This is the greatest epic saga you could have ever heard of. Now, what I want to tell you is that the story of Christmas is the ultimate story to which, to which every other story points to. That's what happened. That's why you and I love stories. Jesus Christ is not only one more lovely story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point to. How so? We watch a movie and we, we see a person living eternally and never dying. But that's what Jesus Christ offers. He offers eternal life. We see a, we see a movie where, where somebody, maybe a couple, maybe a spouse, maybe a family, they're experiencing genuine love and genuine acceptance and genuine understanding. And at the very end, everybody lives happily ever after. My friends, that's the story of the gospel. We will live happily ever after. Jesus is the one who came to defeat sin, death, the powers of hell. And he's giving us a brand new life. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. We're on a journey. And so the greatest, most epic story ever told is a story of the gospel. So next time you're so attracted to a movie or to a show or to a script, I want you to think about the thing in your heart that you're longing for, and that what you're longing for is fulfilled in Jesus. Acceptance, validation, appreciation, affirmation, eternal living, not being sick experiencing reconciliation happily ever after. My friends, that's the gospel. That's Jesus Christ. This is why we love stories. This is why Christmas is the greatest story ever told. So we're talking about the story, and we're talking about genealogies, and we have this long list of strange names that are difficult to pronounce. And we want to talk about values and resumes. You see, 
Just like you and I use our resumes to impress other people or potential bosses, and we hide everything in there that we don't want other people to see, the same way genealogies in the Old Testament and in the Eastern world were used. You put only your face forward the best which you possibly could. If you had uh, bad things in your past, in your genealogy, you don't list those family members or you don't list those people. My friends, this is why Christmas is not a sentimental holiday where we just say, cheer up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay until you meet Jesus, and that is when your real life starts. So when we look at this story, the gospel writer does not blot out from history all of the sordid past of where Jesus came from. I mean, think about this part for a second. There's five women that are listed in the genealogy, and we're like thinking, well, what's special about that? Because this was a patriarchal society, and women got no respect. Women weren't even mentioned anywhere, and Matthew's going against all cultural odds and mentioning five women, and get this, three of them were not even Jews. They were Gentiles. It's incredible what he's doing. He's mentioning Tamar, who... Get this, this is part of Jesus' line. She tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. Um, Not good, right? Um, Matthew includes Tamar to make sure we bring the whole story to mind. It was to remind you and me that Jesus came from a dysfunctional family. So if you have some issues or problems in your family, you're in good company with the Messiah. It's okay. Someone's like, oh man, I got this uncle, I got this brother, I got this cousin. Jesus did too. Jesus did too. He came from an incredibly dysfunctional family. Matthew mentions Rahab. She was a prostitute. Bathsheba, uh, we know the story about her. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of the people to whom David owed his life. And then David sleeps with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then has Uriah killed. It was out of this dysfunctional, deeply flawed family that the Messiah came. My friends, your past may be a part of your life, but it does not define your life. Failure is an event, not a person. And if you've experienced dysfunction, if you've experienced problems, if you have a checkered past, Jesus can make all things new. And that's the greatest story ever told. Amen? That's the reality of Christmas And in this story, in this genealogy that we thought is so boring or we don't understand why it's there, we have moral outsiders, we have adulterers, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. We're reminded that even the most prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were moral failures. What does this all mean? Here's what it means, my friends. You can be excluded by your family. You can be excluded by society. You can be excluded by culture. You can be excluded by your, your, your friends, but you will be included by Jesus. Jesus includes you. He looks at your sordid past and says, all is clean because I've paid for it all. That's the greatness of Christmas. It means it's, if this is not the greatest news you've ever heard, I don't know what is. And this is why Jesus' holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. We often say, well, God, I've done so many wrong things in my life. I don't know how you're going to accept me. The wrong things you've, you've done do, do not scare God. 
Instead of your unholiness contaminating God, God infects you with his holiness. God gives you a brand new life. God gives you a brand new chance. So I want you guys to rethink of genealogies. Are genealogies boring? No, because even the genealogies are dripping with God's mercy. Even the most lackluster parts are dripping with God's mercy. Even the parts in your life that maybe you don't want other people to find out, there is God somewhere deep inside of there, and he's going to use that as a redemption story in your life. So Christmas means that we're so lost, we're so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. We worship someone who can put your life together and who's doing that at this very moment? My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever mess or issue or problem or frustration or anxiety you're dealing with today, do you believe God can put that back together? The answer is yes, he can. That's the greatest story ever told. So when we read the Bible, we see that Jesus, when he died on the cross, darkness fell over the land, and the light of the world descended into darkness in order to bring us into God's beautiful light. But my friends, you won't be able to experience the promise of what Christmas is offering you unless you admit that you're in the dark, at least in some area of your life. And you say, God, I'm sorry, I've been trying to control my own life. I've been worried about things that I shouldn't worry about. I've been trying to control people I shouldn't control. I've been trying to direct things I shouldn't be directing. I've been trying to do things I shouldn't be doing. And God today is giving you the greatest story that he's ever told. It says, look, I'm in charge, I'm in control. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. My friends, the greatest story ever told is the fact that God breaks in with his miraculous light into your dark world. You were walking in darkness, you saw great light, and it says on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. My friends, as we wrap up this first message and as we prepare for communion, I want to tell you this, that in your life today, a light is dawning. I want us to stand. This is, my friends, a brand new beginning for you and for me. A light is dawning. Jesus Christ is coming to earth. He's being born to save us, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to save us from this inability of us to use things to save ourselves. We were people who walked in darkness. We've seen a great light. A light has dawned. And my friends, that is the greatest story ever told about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You are listening to a message preached by Pastor Bogdan Kipko at Forward Church in Irvine, California. For more information about Forward Church, please visit forward.fm.